0: Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be in verse 1. We finally got to the 7th chapter of Mark, and this is like week 16, I think. And so we've been kind of plodding through uh, at a decent pace, faster than than certainly we did Romans, if you are with us when we did that. But we're in uh, week 15, Mark 7, verse 1. And so what we like to do, because Mark is a narrative, because uh, the story builds on itself, is to give you a little bit of recap about where we've been. Okay? And so last week was very important, this huge moment in the book of Mark, because we went all the way back last week to Mark chapter 3, and we saw at the end of Mark 3, this question was posed. And the question was, who is this man whom even the waves obey? And we told you guys that day that from that moment on through the rest of the gospel that Mark is going to do his best to answer this question for us. But we saw at the end of chapter 6 last week, we saw Jesus really answer this question for us and declare not just do things that only God could do, but actually claim his deity before the world. And he did it through some Old Testament texts we don't have time to get into now, uh, but I invite you to go back and listen to that. So here's where we come up to the story today, is now the people, the disciples, and hopefully a lot of the people that are following, trying to listen, and are thinking, this guy is God. Now, not all of them are going to get it, and there's still going to be some debate throughout the rest of the book and on, actually, throughout history even to today. Uh, but a lot of the people, I think, hear the message last week, say, oh my gosh, he's God, and just like it is as a human, anytime we're uh, in, in the midst of greatness, we try and prove ourselves right? Anytime we're confronted with greatness, we want to prove ourselves that we belong to be in the midst of greatness, okay? Um, This won't mean a ton to to many of you, but if you're familiar with a man named Wayne Grudem, he wrote this book called Systematic Theology, which is like the primer on theology for seminary students. You go to seminary, you're going to read this thing, okay? We make our interns do it, and it just kind of breaks down systematically all the theology. Anyway, he lives in Phoenix, teaches at Phoenix Seminary. I remember one time when I was preaching down at Redemption Tempe, I'm preaching, or I'm getting ready to preach, and I go up on stage, and I look out, and Wayne Grudem is sitting in, like, row four, okay? Now, I immediately begin to think, well, one, don't say something stupid, right, or wrong or contradictory to Jesus, right? Um, and then two, I need to do really, really well because, if you will, a celebrity of the faith is sitting four rows in front of me, Okay? And so it was the worst sermon I've ever preached in my life. I mean, it was just awkward. I think I said that Jesus wasn't God. I mean, it was, it was just super bad, right? And I remember him just, he was like writing stuff down. I was, it was probably a note to my boss saying, fire him, right? I mean, just, and so the whole thing went to shambles. And, and that, that such is, I think, the anxiety of the human heart to always prove ourselves in the midst of greatness. Anytime maybe you've met a celebrity, you began to clam up a bit, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's an insert. The person. I think in the midst of greatness, we want to prove we belong with that greatness. And so I think Mark is really smart in the way he tells this narrative, and the way he brought together this gospel as led by the Holy Spirit to tell us, listen, Jesus is God, he is great, he is the man who completely stopped the waves, right? He is the man who uh, raised the guy from that, heals the paralytic, sets people free, forgives sins. He is that guy. But you need not rush to try and prove it, that you belong in his presence. You need not run and say, okay, God, let me lay before you my resume to say, I belong here. I belong, don't worry, I can stay because I'm good enough. And I think Mark is going to address that in a very profound way through Jesus here. Now, we are going to look at an introduction of a theme throughout, we're going to see throughout the rest of the gospel here, of this external versus the internal. The external life versus the internal life. The external reality of who we are versus the internal reality of who we are. And so we're going to see these two things constantly in battle with one another. And what we'll get confronted with today is that we are way too focused on the external that we often just look around, we judge one another, we judge ourselves based on what we've done, we try and prove ourselves to the world. This is not just a church thing, this is a culture thing. Everyone in our world today is trying to prove themselves to say, look at what I've done, I belong here, okay? Just as an illustration, and I used this at a wedding I officiated a couple weeks ago, and uh, it was an interview of these kids, and they were asked, hey, uh, you know, what do you believe it takes to fall in love? You know, what is love? And I think really at the heart of today's message, will mean, do we love God? What does it mean to love God? And so I began to look at this, and these kids were interviewed, and so I thought I'd share some of their answers with us, okay? The first question was, why does love happen between certain people? Okay, Andrew, age six, said, well, one of the people has freckles, and so he finds someone else who has freckles too, which is just obviously true, okay? Uh, where's Dane? Dane? Not here? He's in kids. Oh, well, he's going to love that one. And May, age 9, says, no one is really sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. And that's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. Okay. <laughs> how about this question? How important is your looks when it comes to falling in love? Anita, age, se- age, age 8, said, if you want to be loved by somebody who isn't already in your family, it doesn't hurt to be beautiful. Right? <laughs> Brian, age 7, said, it isn't always just how you look. Look at me, I'm handsome like anything and I haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. Okay. Christine, age 8, While beauty is skin deep, how rich you are can last a really long time. Okay. couple more. couple more. What are surefire ways to fall in love? Dell, age 6, says, Tell her you own a whole bunch of candy stores. Okay. And Camille, my favorite, Shake your hips and hope for the best. Parents need to do a better job with that one. That one's, that's terrifying, okay? Last question, okay, and this will bring us back. How to make love endure? How to make love endure? Aaron, Aaron, age eight, said, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up the love. That's true. And Dave, age eight, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget you never took out the trash, okay? So... That last one in particular, because again, you know, it's if you do this, as long as you can maintain this level, then that person will still love you. As, as long as you can, and this is what's crazy to me, these kids, all of them under age 9, as, as early as age 6, and all these kids were interviewed, and everything is what? Every answer was what you do. Every answer to prove what love is, how a relationship works between husband and wife or couple, you know, relationship and relationship, was what do you do to make it work? How do you prove yourself? What do you bring to the table so that the other person not only will fall in love with you initially, but will keep staying in love with you? You see, these kids are not just getting this from nowhere, right? They're fed this by all of us and all of culture that say, yeah, do this and don't do that and do this and I will love you more if. And, on, and you see the stuff on television and media and we experience it in our daily lives. And this is the type of thing that we bring into Mark chapter 7 this morning. What we're going to realize is the issue that we come at today is not just an issue for us, okay, it's not even just an issue for the New Testament Pharisee with whom Jesus confronts in this. It's not just an issue for the Old Testament Israelites who Jesus will quote in, using the book of Isaiah. It's, not just a, it's an issue all the way back to creation where Adam and Eve initially at the heart level wanted to be God. Wanted to do that which God could do. Wanted to be wise like him and took his authority and tried to put their own in it. And so we'll see in the very beginning this has been a problem for humanity. And the answer is not try harder. The answer is not stop doing that. The answer is not do this more. The answer is, say it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Come on, people. It's always Jesus. You didn't know that? If a pastor ever has a question, it's always Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Every time. And so these are all the things that we bring in the text. So a couple more things that I think we have to talk about before we get into this. The Pharisees were dealing with this. This was a New Testament Pharisaical problem. But it didn't start out that way. Okay. Kind of a simple study, if you look at the lives of the Pharisees when they first come on the scene. This is about two centuries B.C., 2nd century BC, around 150 BC, they come onto the scene and these guys were trying to speak on behalf of God because God had been silent. We had this thing called the intertestamental period between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins with the advent of Christ. And we have this 400-year gap or so where God did not speak through a prophet and give us any scripture. And so the Pharisees were trying to do their best to speak on behalf of God, to tell the people he's still here, he still loves you, and interpret the law for them that they might still follow God. And so what started out with really good intention brings us to our text today. And the question asked me, well, what happened? Like, what happened, you guys? You started? And I think it's human nature. I think it's sin. I think what won over was that they began to get power. They began to get authority. People began to believe in them, and then they did at the heart level what Jesus will talk about. They supplanted God for themselves. They trusted in themselves and not him. They began to say, we, you know what? We'll be the mouthpiece to the people. You don't need to speak ever again. So when Jesus comes on the scene, there are so many power structures that are being attacked, and he's going to address all of this here And then the last thing to get us ready, Jewish Old Testament law, okay, just real brief. Depending on what interpretation you look at, there could be up to about 613 Old Testament laws, and again, depending on interpretation of those, 613, so there are a lot of things that people had to do. The reasons why they did this were many. One was to set the people of God apart, to say, this is God's people, they do things a certain way, so when people would see them, they would look to God above. The other one, and more importantly, was to say, hey, I'm going to give you this law. You're not going to be able to fulfill it. And in that not fulfillment, you will realize you're not good enough and you need someone else. And then I will come in the form of a man named Jesus Christ to be that answer for you. Now, they totally miss this, right? But again, these are all the things that we bring into the text today. So here we go. Verse 1, Mark 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so here's what we got. Jesus is back in Gennesaret. He's healing people. There's all sorts of neat things happening, okay, as always. And here we go. The Pharisees, the scribes come down from Jerusalem. These were like the all-star scribes, right? They were at like the hub. So these guys were coming in because they're hearing all this stuff, right? They're hearing the chatter from a distance, and they're beginning to say, you know what? This is beginning to get out of hand. We need to intervene. This is the second time we've seen these guys come from Jerusalem. The scribes are trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to discredit Jesus, ruin Jesus, and stop Jesus' ministry. They've already attacked him on all things, like the Sabbath, and uh, they accused him for like, working for Satan, which was interesting. They said, why don't you fast? And now they get to the issue of being unclean and eating with defiled hands. Now, what this is, this is an issue, right? This is a real thing. So what the Pharisees did here is they're, uh, they're building off of actual Old Testament law. Okay, in uh, Exodus 30 and Exodus 40, there are actual stuff, actual laws that say you, you need to stay clean, right? And you need to purify yourself before God. You need to cleanse your hands. There are things that will make you unclean. And so they address that in Exodus as law. So the people of God take all this and say, this is what we should do. But what's happened here is the Pharisees have taken Old Testament law and then they've added to it, okay? They've taken things that God gave the people of God to point to their holiness, but also to tell them they couldn't get there and they've made it more whatever they wanted. They added a bit of themselves on it. And again, they're building off of these, over a few centuries now, of saying, we're the boss, we're the chief. We tell you what the Old Testament says and you do it. And so what they've done is they've taken what God has actually said and they distort it to make it something God hasn't actually said. And this is a big issue. This is a big problem for Jesus. He's not going to like this very much. And so they continue on. Now what we notice here at the end of, question, or at the end of that first passage is we're going to get the question in verse 5, but we don't get the answer to that question until verse 14. Okay, so there's a question posed by the Pharisees, by the scribes, in five, of, man, how come they're eating with defiled hands? Now, you'd expect, because in any good conversation you have, when someone asks you a question, you just answer the question. Jesus is going to go beyond that and address something more important before he gets to the theological answer. And so what we have is eight verses, sandwiched in between verses five and fourteen, to address the heart level of where this question comes from. And it's also the heart level that we need to adopt should we want to live in light of what does it mean to love God and follow him with our whole being. Okay, so here we go. Verse six. <clears throat> he said to them, Well, did I say a prophesy of you hypocrites? As is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so imagine this. I come up and I just ask you a question. I say, hey, how come you didn't come play soccer last night? And you say, well, you're a hypocrite. That's why. <laughs> and you say, what? <laughs> like, I was just as a question, Jesus. You no. Know, so again, what's he doing here? And I love, what I love about what Jesus is doing here is he's going beyond the question, right? And listen, I, if you're like me, I, I read a good amount of blogs, and then what happens is I get down to the comment section of the blogs where we all should stop reading, but it's like, ooh, juicy, right? <laughs> and so we keep reading, and what is it? It's this nonstop, if it's, specific, it's a Christian blog, you know, it's, it's this nonstop trying to one-up one another with a, a better zinger, right? It, it's trying to say, well, let's have this theological battle over the Internet in which we'll never see each other, never have an actual conversation, okay? And so you see this all the time. What Jesus is doing He's saying, listen, okay, you're going to ask this question, and there is an answer, and I'm going to give it to you in just a little bit. But, man, let's talk about your heart for a second. Let's get behind the question. Let's actually begin to engage with people in such a way where we're not just trying to slam Bible down people's throats, but say, I hear you, and your heart is longing for this. Let's talk about that, and then we'll get to the answers. I love this approach by Christ. I think it's something we need to adopt. That's just a little nugget from Jesus for you to enjoy. Isaiah now also is where this originates. Jesus is going to quote Isaiah with those verses in six and seven. So let me read Isaiah twenty nine, thirteen through sixteen. He says this, the Lord says, Because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now verse 15, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Right? And so Jesus is, is quoting Old Testament here. He's going, he's saying, listen, you guys should know this. And the Pharisees, they knew everything. They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands. And so as he quotes Isaiah, they're going back and saying, okay, I think that's in Isaiah 29. Yeah, and, and this is what God was doing then. And so Jesus is intentionally bringing this to the forefront. And he's saying at the heart level, here's what's actually going on. You don't, you don't worship, I mean, you, you worship me with your mouth, but your hearts, it's, it's gross. It's defiled. You don't actually love me. You only love me because what, verse 13, because commandments of men have told you to. In other words, you show up to church because someone told you you're supposed to, not because you love Jesus. Because you go to Bible study or you get up and you do quiet time because I told you to do it and not because you love Jesus and want to learn more about Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you guys keep coming to me with this stuff and you keep trying to prove it to me. Stop trying to prove it to me. Stop trying to show that you love me because you were told to. Uh, Verity and I, and dang, is she here? She's not. Okay, so I can do this. Um, she told me before, she said, listen, you've got to run all illustrations by me. But this one came to me like six minutes ago, and so I'm going to do it. Um, so, so V and I, and, and I think every relationship can probably identify with this. Okay, we're sitting down, and we're watching television, and, uh, you know, something like, probably like Bible trivia or something about, you know, heaven. And so we're um, we're watching TV, and all of a sudden, uh, she turns around. It had been a couple hours. She turns around, and she goes, why haven't you tried to scratch my head? And I said, oh, I got, you know, I didn't know. You know. So what do I do? I start scratching her head. And what does she say? I don't want you to do it now. And then I say, what? <laughs> you, we You just said... Why haven't you started scratching my head? So I scratch your head like problem solved. As situation fixed, we can be in love again, right? <laughs> Instead, it's, well, I don't want it now. And, and I'll be honest, in the moment, I'm just like, uh, I get frustrated, you know, because I'm sinful and dumb. But, um, but at the heart level of what Verity's trying to engage with is, listen, man, if I got to tell you to do it, like, yeah, you'll do it because you're my husband. But that doesn't show me your love, It doesn't reveal to me an internal desire to care for me, to love me, to show me happiness and grace and joy and all of these things. But if I did it proactively, and I thought, man, you know what, I just love my wife so much, and I know this is something that she really enjoys, right? I'll just do it. And so I honestly do get it. In some ways, I'm glad she's not here, because then I don't have to do it, but... um, I get where she's coming, because it's the same thing here. God just being like, listen, if, if it's this begrudging submission thing, if I have to say, hey, listen, you worship me, you sing these songs, you, you read this verse, you sit in that pew, you on it, if, you, if it's a have to thing, where's the love? Where's the relationship? Where's the worship of God? have we not just taken things commandments of men traditions in our own society and said i will continue to do these so that god loves me but inside there's not much inside there's not this affection for christ there's not this thanksgiving for what he's accomplished There's not a true understanding of the reality that this man came and died in your place, that this man rose from the dead, that you could be reconciled and live once again with God. There's not this reality that he has secured a place for you eternally. You don't sit in worship or thanksgiving of that God. You sit in worship and thanksgiving of the fact that you can do enough to prove to him that you belong there. And this is, and listen, it's subtle. It's subtle because it's so, I think, embedded in our culture. And so here's what I do, and we don't do this very often, is, is I want, I just feel like this, this idea, and I, the more I spent time trying to just sit in it myself, the more was exposed in my own heart. I was just like, gosh, actually, I, I do do this, you know? Like, I, I, I do often not view God in the lens that I think the Bible calls me to, nor what seems to make sense in light of the work of Christ in my life and the life of this world. And so, what I'd like for us to do, I want us to just kind of sit, and it's going to be silent, which is always awkward, and you're always going to be thinking whatever people think. I want us to just sit for a minute, if we would, if you could just humor me in that, and and try and sit through, and, exa- and just and we, we you know we spend a couple minutes at the end reflecting too, but right here in this moment to sit through, where am I at with this? If if I'm sitting right in front of Jesus and He looks directly at me and says, you know what, you honor me with your lips but you don't truly love me. If he says that to you, what are the things that begin to raise up for you? And so we just take a minute and do that and then we'll keep going. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And I tell you, I read that, and I am just like, Lord help me, I, I don't I don't want that I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be us. You're too good. And when you look at Isaiah, here's the two things they began to question. Here's the two things that the Old Testament Israelites were questioning. Okay. One they're questioning God as creator. Questioning God as he didn't he did not make me. They say, right? Questioning God as creator. The second one, he does not understand, right? God has no understanding. Seems kind of a silly thing to say. So they're questioning him as sustainer. They question God as creator and they question God as sustainer. He's listen, God. You know what, man? You didn't create this. I created me. I'm a self-made man. I've earned this. I'll prove it to the world, and so I'll live that way. God, you don't sustain this. I sustain this. It's because I work hard. It's because I've done this. It's because I've done that. And again, we lay out the resume because we've left God behind in these two areas and said, you know what? I'm my own creator. I'm my own sustainer. And I think when we say it out loud, that sounds like, wow, I'd never do that. Man, in functional little ways, I just think that's the reality, amen, of the reality of our lives, okay? So, Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to give them a specific example of how they're doing it, and then I'm going to give us a specific example of how we're doing it. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is back in uh, in Mark. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. And so this is in our traditional Corbin situation, which we've all experienced, right? I mean just ah Corbin. Um, it, what was that double, Larry? Ground rule double? I don't even know. Um, no one gets that one. So that was just me and that was just me and the Simons. Um, And so what's happening here is Jesus is pointing out this very specific instance that is occurring right now with the New Testament Pharisee. What they're doing is going to people and say, okay, honor your father. In other words, take care of the needy. Take care of your families. They're getting older. They're not able to provide for themselves, bring them into your home, give them money, support them, right? That's just in there. That's law. That's the way it's always been interpreted. But what happened was the Pharisee saying, saying, you know what, that money though, That money's Corban. In other words, that money is assigned to God. That money should not go towards your family. That money should go to the temple. That money should go to the priest. That money should be ascribed to God. And then what you found was the Pharisees were then taking the money that was Corban and then they were abusing the use of it. And so what they did is they, they kind of schemed and got in there and allowed for these things that were meant to be good. They made it for their benefit. And so they kind of schemed in there to say, you know what, it'd be a little bit better. What if we made it sound like this, and then we can live it this way, okay? So that's them. Here's us. Here's one. One of my favorite Bible verses in the entire world, right, that is not even in the Bible, okay, is God helps those who helps themselves. We hear this one all the time. And if you think it's in the Bible, it's not, okay? Okay? The reality is, uh, George Barna of the Barna Group did a study in the mid-2000s, so give it some grace a bit later. Maybe people have wisened up a little bit. But back then, 80% of evangelicals believed God, God helps those who help themselves was in scripture. Okay, 80%, four to five. So if you're in here, I don't judge you, I love you. You're with four-fifths of the people in the world okay? Evangelicals in the world. God helps those who helps themselves. A tradition passed down, something God kind of said, but not really, because it flies in the face of grace. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those whom he helps, right? God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. God shows grace on whom he shows grace. God is God. He makes the decisions. He doesn't help those who help themselves, but we've adopted this as a mantra for the church, Oh, yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll help you, but, I mean, help, help yourself, too. You know, you know, you, you know I, yeah, like, we're going to come in. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll, but, you know, we'll have to stop because, yeah, you're not really doing your part. You know why? Because God helps those who help themselves. Bill O'Reilly, and whether you're a fan or not, I think he was off when he said this. He was talking to this guy about charity during, during uh, the Christmas season. And he says, while Jesus promoted charity at the highest level, he was not self-destructive, which is true, right? The Lord helps those who help themselves, does he not? Right? And this was this long debate that happens on the O'Reilly factor. And they go back and forth, and the guy's like, I don't think it says that. And he's like, no, it's in there, right? And I'm there like, it's not in there, Bill! <laughs> Sticking to the traditions of men, you know, quoting Isaiah. Um, Colbert you guys uh, watch Stephen Colbert, Colbert Report, he then rebuts this in his own satirical way, saying this, if this is going to be a, and he does the quote, a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we've got to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, or we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition, ready, and then admit we just don't want to do it, Okay. And so what he's saying is like, listen, all we've done here is exactly what the Pharisees have done. We've taken something that God kind of said. We're supposed to care for people, but we don't want to enable and kind of all of this. And we said, you know what, this was what makes most sense to us. God wouldn't help someone who doesn't help themselves. And I surely don't want to help someone who doesn't help themselves. So you know what, the people that are needy, you know what, this homeless guy that's struggling, you know what, I'm not going to try and bring him in. Because clearly he's not helping himself, so why should I help him? Because God's not. And on and on and on, and And, you know, there's all sorts, and if you've read When Helping Hurts, this is just getting a long rabbit trail, but I'm just saying, we love because Jesus loves. We show grace because God shows grace. We show mercy because God shows mercy. We do that, and there's no condition to it. There hasn't been a condition for your life. We want there to be a condition because we so badly want to prove to God that we deserve his grace. We want so badly for God to look down and say, you know what, everybody else in the room doesn't, but you're that good. Because, you know, and you know how I know this? is because we all come here and we hide like crazy the brokenness and sin that we all do and experience. And I, I mean, I sit down with a lot of you, and I see it. And I see, you, I'll, I mean, I'll sit down with people, and you, for Sunday after Sunday, I just see you and you're so happy, everything's great. And then I sit down with you, and it turns out the entire time that you've been here, you've been sneaking off to strip clubs and sleeping with prostitutes, and that's a real thing that happened. Okay. And I'm just like, wait, wait a minute. When did we become a people who were so afraid? of God when God addresses you and says listen it's the exact opposite you come to me with whatever you got you bring it all because it does not matter you bring it all to me what you've done what you've said what you think your entire history your entire past bring it to me you'll need to prove yourself in this place you need to prove yourself to God and so he addresses that and let's wrap up verse 14 he finally answers this question Finally, after getting to the heart of the matter, that it's us trying, we've turned things upside down. We've tried to become God. We've tried to show we're good enough. He finally answers the question in verse 14. says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declares all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of a heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and all these things come from within, and they... Defile a person. Okay. So his theological answer to hey, why are my guys eating with unclean hands? Is this theological reality because what's outside cannot change the inside. Okay? But it's the inside that's actually broken. It's the inside that's messed up. Now you look out at our culture, and every self help book that you read is probably going to tell you how to change your outside, how to look better, how to do better how to earn more money, how to be happier, how to travel better, how to fit your thing in there. All to address this external stuff. And there's a few things out there that are going to talk heart, but nothing like the Bible, nothing like Jesus. And this is the, this is the, the, the contrast that he brings up in this, this, this uh, external versus internal reality. And saying, listen, the outside, it, it's not going to do anything to you. The inside's what's hurting. The inside's what's broken. If you want to work on something, you need to work on this. And I'll tell you what, friends, there's only one answer. And it's Jesus. You guys are so smart. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. You can't figure this thing out on your own. There's not enough good you can do. You can't earn it. You can't prove it. It doesn't exist. Because the external's not the problem. The external is just an overflow, a sign of what's happening in here. You want to follow God? You want to love God? You need to talk about this. You need to get into your heart. You need to come here and put on a show. Sit down. Be real. Talk about life. Say, this is what I'm dealing with, man. I don't know what I'm going to do. You're going to look at Jesus. You're going to point him to Jesus. You're going to talk about the gospel that sets us free and says, listen, you'll never earn this thing, but praise God for the cross. That's what you're going to do. So let's let go of this. Let's stop trying to prove it. Let's stop trying to be God. Look, Adam and Eve all the way in the beginning, they did the same thing. It's been the issue. Let me do it. I got this. You don't got it. We don't got it. Jesus got it. Jesus had it. Last verse I want to point to is back in Isaiah. And it's verse 14. Let me read it. This is in response. Okay, this is in response. What will Jesus do with the reality That people with their mouths praise, but with their hearts distant. What will he do? Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And so God's response to man's disobedience, God's response to us praising him but our hearts being distant, God's response to our hypocrisy was not death, was not get away, was not ostracism, was not I hate you. God's response was, watch what I'm going to do next. Just watch what I'm going to do next. I will accomplish wonder upon wonder, and you will look and see I am God and I love you. And so for the Old Testament Jews, he does all of this. I mean, it's just amazing the way he cares for his people in the midst of disobedience throughout the entire Old Testament. But you come to the new, and he's addressing Jesus again, talking to them now. He's like, you're still doing it. You're still trying to earn it. You're still praising with your mouth, but your heart is wicked. Jesus, I'm here. And he's accomplishing wonder upon wonder upon wonder. You read the Gospel of Mark, and it's just over and over these wondrous things that our Savior has done to prove to themselves what He said at the end of chapter 6 I am God. I am here. And I will push away all those who would lie to you, I would push away all those who would lead you towards death. I am here now. Believe in me, trust in me, I will do wondrous things. The wondrous thing that we live in today, the story that we get to know living in 2015 is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came in the form of a man as an infant, completely helpless, had to be raised, right? and live a life that we could never live, that perfection, the way that we always think that we love each other. He did it perfectly. He lives everything. Never sins. No brokenness, no pain, no rebellion, no disobedience, nothing. Listen, imagine never making a mistake, never doing anything wrong, never harming people, never having anything in your heart that would be deemed sin, ever. He does that. And the man who did not deserve death took death, our death, on his shoulders died a death that gave us the forgiveness of sins. By us putting our sin on him, him giving us his perfection and righteousness, we are saved. And then, guys, he rose from the dead himself. I mean, he's like, oh, I'm up. That's probably what happened. He rose from the dead. What wondrous things our Lord and Savior has accomplished today. And I tell you what, he didn't accomplish it. He didn't do all of it so that we could just try and prove it to the world. Prove ourselves to the world, that is. He didn't do all those things. He didn't come here. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't raise on the third day. He didn't give us his righteousness. He didn't save. He didn't give you grace upon grace that you would go and then just say it was you. He didn't do it so that you would go and tell the world, look what I've done. I've saved myself. Stop living like it. He did it that you would continuously in everything you do in all of life all for Jesus point to the reality that God has brought back and saved his creation from utter and total darkness. Amen? That's the gospel. So where are we at this morning? If we're honest where are we at? Where are our hearts? Where are our actions? And how is all that working together in light of this isn't about us this is about his story it's about his gospel. And so how do we proclaim that to the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we say this, I confess the various things that even in verses twenty-one through twenty-three and twenty two that God that are just wickedness that pour from me. God, that I just, you know, my heart thinks things, my mind goes places, my hands and feet take part in actions, God, that are not that not you. And so, Lord, I I apologize. God, I ask that we would all be a people who would have no problem confessing sin to you. God, you're the only person in the entire world that could judge me, that should judge me, that will judge me. And you're the only one also says, bring me all the junk. Let's put it on the cross. God, I thank you for that truth this morning. God, that you've liberated me and you've liberated everyone in this room, whether or not they've fully bought into that reality or not. God, you've liberated us from this this constant rat race to try and be better. God, to just show you that we deserve to be in your greatness, because we don't. God, that we deserve to even be in the room amongst other Christians. God, we, we don't even do that. God, you call us, God, you give us value, and God, we say thank you this morning. And so, God, will we show that and reflect that as we respond? Hey, Father, you are so good. Examine our hearts. God, expose us. See if there be any anxious way in us. God, and lead us in the way everlasting. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so now, again, we're going to take a couple minutes just to sit and reflect quietly. And uh, I, I just, again, the more I just spent time thinking through this text, the more stuff I just felt God was just kind of tearing, tearing out of me. Um and so i so I pray you guys to just take this time seriously and begin to respond now in that way. All right, so we're going to continue on as we respond this morning, and we do so in a few different ways each week here at Redemption. Uh, the first, Nate and M are going to continue to lead us in song. We're going to sing these songs of praise and worship, and I tell you, again, if, if we get what God's done, you know, if, if we understand, if we truly are thankful, man, I, uh, this is no better thing, I think, than to just keep singing his praises. There's a reason why the Psalms are just so extravagant. There's so many of them. So we've to praise God as we sing this morning. second thing we're going to do is we're going to give, and giving is an act of worship. It's all throughout Scripture, and We worship God with how we give. God has given us everything in life. There is not a resource that you possess that God did not give you, and so we give back in faith that he'll always be a provider in our lives, okay? And we also just long to see his mission continue to happen and flourish here in this city. So the thing we do is we come and we take communion. We come to the table and we remind ourselves of the moment when, when, when everything was upside down, how Jesus came back in and made everything right side up. How he made sense of all of the brokenness and said, well, I'm here. And he goes to that cross. And so we remember that as we break this little cracker, we remember his broken body. We dip it in the wine or juice and we remember his shed blood. This blood that covers us, forgives us, and sets us in a right relationship with God. The last thing we're going to do is we're going to pray. And so if you, you know, we always have a handful of people over here to pray with you. If there's something, man, you're just just wrestling through an issue, you just want more. I mean, whatever it is, just come and and pray. Come and talk. Come and be open. Come and be honest. It's not weird. We're we're Christians. We pray. And so come up and pray with us if that's your desire as well, okay? So we're going to pray. We're going to take communion. We're going to give, and we're going to sing to a God who This deserves every single aspect of worship we can give him. Amen? We're oh. not <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Dude, I tell you. I thought you did it on purpose. I thought you were trying to do like a full 360 on it and just be like, I'm that cool. Um, As we go out, I want to read just one more section of Scripture because it wasn't enough today. Um and, and just kind of leave us with this, okay? So 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 11 says this, and this is what I want us to go out with in the reality of the gospel, okay? He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. We go out with this. So we are always of good courage, knowing what God has done, not because we have to, knowing the goodness of God, knowing that the Holy Spirit is in you. We now go to the world and tell them, persuade them this good gospel, this story is a story for all to know. Amen? Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll go. Heavenly Father, would this be so true of us that we would leave empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the gospel story, that we are set free from this bondage to try and earn it, and that this would be a story that would set the world free. Might we be your ambassadors to tell it. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. It's your name we pray, amen.